John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. How many of you have studied the book of John before? Good. So probably the last time you ever have, well, just joking, because we'll be in it until the Lord returns. Which is, we're praying this soon, right, after, after Peter? <laughs> the Gospel of John. Church history uh, tells us that the author of the book of John was the Apostle John. It's fascinating as you read the writings of the early church fathers, like Irenaeus. He lived um, like 130 to 202 AD. Uh, he lived basically in the 2nd century AD. And Irenaeus was born like 30 years after John the Apostle died. And in his writings, he identifies John the Apostle as the writer and the author of the Gospel of John. But Irenaeus wasn't the closest um, source of this info. Irenaeus was actually a disciple of a guy named Polycarp. Polycarp was actually a disciple of John the Apostle along with three other guys that we know of. Polycarp lived from 65 to about 155. And so John died about... They say 90 or 100, around 100 AD, so right in there. So when John was old, Polycarp was probably around 30 or 40 years old being discipled by John. So that's pretty interesting. And Polycarp testifies in his writings that John wrote the gospel account while he was living in Ephesus, actually. While he was living in Ephesus and he was advanced in years. And so Polycarp is an actual eyewitness of the apostle John and his writings. They identify John as the author. John had an older brother named James. We read about that in scriptures. They were fishermen. They were known as the sons of Zebedee, who was their father, um, uh, in Matthew 10, 2-4 tells us. But Jesus called them another name. He called them the sons of thunder. How many of you guys remember that? Uh, yeah, the sons of thunder, Mark three seventeen says. But both James and John were pretty fiery uh, fiery in their younger years. In Luke 9.54, if you remember the story, um, it's, it's pretty amazing. So Jesus is going to enter Samaria. Samaria is not really liked by the Jews. But anyways, they, the, Jesus wants to enter this town, but they wouldn't let Jesus because he was on his way to Jerusalem, which they had a problem with. And so in, a, in, in just typical James and John fashion in verse 54, they ask, they say, hey, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and destroy them? That's, that's what they said. Like, hey, can we, can we pull out, can we use that one? Can we do that now? You know, all this, all this training and all these things, and they just wanted to call down fire on the city and burn them up. And so those are the sons of thunder. Think about the people that God chooses. Think about the people that God chooses to be his apostles and his disciples. We look at Peter and we look at, okay, Captain Foot and Mouth. Well, this is Captain Fire from heaven. And so um, both James and John were pretty fiery in their, in fiery guys. But John was one of the original 12 disciples, and those 12, uh, 11 of the 12 were later designated as apostles. And then if you add on uh, Pete, uh, sorry, Paul, that puts the 12 back together there, even though there's another guy in there named Matthias. But um, John is mentioned 20 times in Matthew, Mark, and Luke but he never mentions his own name in this writing. Rather, he calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's how he identifies himself. 
the disciple whom Jesus loved. And I find that very telling how John identified himself writing his gospel as an old man in Ephesus. After a lifetime of tempering by the Holy Spirit, he's writing this gospel and he says, I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved. Different than the guy who calls down fire from heaven. It's amazing how Christ changed John's life. How many of you have been impacted by the Lord Jesus, especially over a period of time, how he's tempered you to be more like him? An interesting fact is that uh, quite often, how many of you have heard of the apostle of love? That's, that's referred to as John. John is the apostle of love, so he's been changed so much that he's also referred to as that. An interesting fact, John makes reference to love 80 times in his writings. So not only the Gospel of John, but also 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, which you can read all in probably a half hour, 1st, um, 2nd, 3rd John, but then the, also the book of Revelation. So he mentions love 80 times in his writing. John also focuses on truth. He mentions that 45 times, 20 times in, in this Gospel and 25 times in his other writings. But over 100 times in this Gospel, John uses the word believe. He uses the word believe over a hundred times. And so by these, we can see that John's main focus was that people would believe in the truth so that they would enter into a love relationship with the eternal God. And that's, that's his big thrust here. At the end of John's gospel, you might want to make note of this, in, at the end of in chapter 20, there's 21 chapters, but chapter 20, verse 31 John sums up why he's writing. He says, By these, uh, But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. And so John is writing so that we would believe and have life, and, and the byproduct of that is a love relationship with Jesus Christ. And, and of course, we know that the reason why we are even drawn to God is because of His great love. John says in chapter 3, John 3, 16, I don't even need to put it up there, but for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever would believe in Him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. This is John's major thrust throughout the scriptures, that we would know the true Jesus, and also by knowing the true Jesus that we would have his life. Now, something to note about the gospel of John in addition to this is it's unique from among the other gospels. How many of you have read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Matthew, Mark, and Luke have uh, have a lot in common. You can take whole sections of them, and it's as if they all got in a room and copied each other on certain things. But John, it's, it's really interesting. It's uh, Matthew, Mark, well, let me, let's go back. Look, Matthew, Mark, and Luke mostly focus on the history of Jesus, like Jesus' history. It's really telling an earthly story of, of what he has done, whereas John fo- focuses more on the heavenly story. And so Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels because they give a synopsis of Jesus' earthly life and history. They focus on the birth, the life, the experiences, the travels, um, the teachings, the Jesus' calling upon his disciples. He, they focus on the parables. They focus on the events of Jesus' life, including his arrest, his trial, his execution, his resurrection. John leaves out all of that. Isn't that crazy? Uh, we, we never notice it, but, but it's, it's pretty interesting. 90% of what is written in the book of John 
is not in the other Gospels. It's unique to John's account by the inspiration, obviously, of the Holy Spirit. But it's focusing on the divinity of Jesus Christ. It's focusing on Jesus as God. And it seems from the other writings of the early church fathers that John was combating something called Gnosticism. Gnosticism, the belief that the universe was created by one of countless emanations that come from some kind of supreme thought or being. I know that sounds abstract. You're dealing with Greek philosophy mixed in with early Christianity. And the idea is that there was originally someone, someone divine emanation, whatever that it means, it could be an angelic being or something, but as, as time went on or whatever went on, um, the further away you got from this being, there were other beings in between that being, and each one was less and less and less and less and less and less and less so. But somewhere along there, on the way, one of these beings created the universe, and there was an emphasis on the material world as opposed to the spiritual world. And so the teaching was that it doesn't make a difference what you actually do as long as you're spiritual. And, and there's an attack on that. And so, so th- John's kind of combating that. I know that sounds confusing, but we'll, we'll flesh that out a little bit further later. But this doctrine was creeping into the, into the church that, um, into the church. And so John appears to be setting the record straight about who Jesus is. And that's kind of what happens to us. When we come to Christ, sometimes we take the, the Jesus that we know and we make him our God as opposed to know who he really is. And so the Lord has to clean up our ideas of, of who Jesus really is and who, and who he isn't, that he isn't a hodgepodge of all our great ideas put together, that he is, he defines himself and he reveals himself into the world. And to know the one true Christ is to know life. It is to know salvation. It is to know, and Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. There is no other way to the Father. And so if we get him wrong, we get salvation wrong. And the enemy would really want to have that happen. So John's want, he's going to hit down and clarifying who Jesus is. He's going to make the case that he is God. He's, gonna, he's the son of God. All these things he's going to be going for and that we have life in him. And there's no other way. And so John appears to be setting the record straight on who Jesus is. And so he spends chapter after chapter for clarifying that. That the creator of the universe came into the creation and became a man. That's just a a, a trippy idea. But the creator, the uncreated, became a man, and he came to give us his life, which is not in us but is in him. And John was writing, John was written that we might be saved by believing in the true Christ. And so John builds this case that Jesus is the eternal God in the flesh and so that we would know the true Christ. And by the way, you cannot be saved by believing in a false Christ. The false Christ of the world religions is not the Christ of the Bible, is not the Christ of the apostles, is not the Christ that we read. We don't just all get along. This is where we totally part roads with the Mormons and with the Jehovah's Witnesses and all these other people who say that they're kind of Christians or whatever it might be. They're not because they don't believe in Christ as he is revealed in Scripture. And we'll get into some of that fun stuff later. But you must believe in the true Christ to be saved. And again, at the end of the book, 
in John 20, 30 and 31, Jesus says now, I mean, John says about Jesus, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name, and his name means all that he represents. So as we go, we're going to know the true Christ more fully. How many of you feel like, you know, you know Jesus, but you really don't know Jesus? We are going to get in depth. We're going to know Christ. And this is what all of life is about, to know Christ. He's revealed it, and it's here, and we're going to dig it out, and it's going to be awesome as the Holy Spirit leads us. And so with that introduction, let's begin in John chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5. If you'd like to read these verses um, again and again, I would encourage you to afterwards, but we'll go ahead and read them together now, and then I'll uh, expound on them with the remaining of our time. John 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him not, uh, was not anything made that was made. Verse 4, in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Seems very poetic, doesn't it? John begins to introduce us to the word. Do you see the word is the word word is repeated several times there? One one important thing about studying your Bible, look for what it's saying, not what you want it to say. Important. What so we know that if we just read these first five verses, what is it talking about? It's talking about the word, correct? And then you would want to know, well, what is it saying about the Word and all those types of things. But John is writing his gospel so that both Jews and non-Jews would, would know that Jesus is the Son of God, that He is God in the flesh. He's communicating that to a world that has totally messed up views of what that means. And so to begin to bridge the gap of understanding between the Jew and the Greek mind around him, he uses this idea of the logos, the word. The word is logos in the Greek. And both would have a, have a kind of cursory understanding of what that meant in their own kind of philosophical and religious backgrounds. And so the word logos, which is translated here, it begins to describe a supernatural Jesus to his readers. And that's what he's trying to do is to, is to des- describe that Jesus is supernatural. He is the logos. He is the word. And so from a Jewish perspective, we know as we read the Old Testament, you see the word word all the time in the Old Testament. And, and, and that would be uh, whenever the Jew would kind of think, hey, the word is God's self-expression of, of who he is. And in other words, he, um, he spoke the worlds into existence. He, uh, he, um, he reveals himself by his word. He saves people by his word. You'll see all these things, these, things uh, uh, these phrases repeated in the Old Testament. It's an expression of God. It's, it's divine. And so that was the point that John was trying to get, is this word of the Lord. Who is the word of the Lord? What is the word of the Lord? What is this that the Old Testament's talking about? It's actually a person, and that's what he's going to try to communicate. It's not just a distant thought. It's actually a person. And so for the Jew, the term word would have been very familiar to them from an Old Testament perspective. They would have seen that idea of the word as being divine in some way. But for others like the Greeks, the term logos was a non-personal power. 
It was an impersonal power, a, a force that orders the universe in some kind of way. And I kind of alluded to it with the Gnostic philosophy, but in general, the Greeks in their philosophy believed in a logos, some divine reason. In other words, they looked at the universe, they, they understood that it had to come about in some kind of order. And I think anybody who has any kind of mind has to say that there's an order to the universe. There are laws, there are things put together, there are things floating around in specific ways. Look at you. You know what I mean? There's exact things. And so the Greeks would say, well, there's a logos. There's, there's a divine mind behind this. But they would say that it's impersonal. It's not really a person. It's, it's some kind of impersonal force. But nevertheless, it was a divine order. And you can see the concept of the Greek mind encapsulates the supernatural there. And so that's exactly what John is, John is trying to stir up in the Jewish and the Greek mind and in ours, the idea of the word being supernatural, not being of the origin of the earth, not being from us. But John isn't going to leave us in that ambiguity of philosophy. He's not going to leave us confused. He's going to take that concept and, and begin to sculpt it here in the first several verses. And he's leading up to verse 14. So I'm going to skip ahead. Verse 14, which says, And the Word became what? Flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and the truth. So the Word isn't just an expression of God. It isn't just some divine mind that orders things. It's actually a person. And that person became flesh and dwelt among us, the eternal God in human form. That's what John's going after. So Jesus Christ, the Logos, the Word, is a person. He is the creator of the heavens and the earth, and He dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. And so if you're taking notes, there's seven aspects concerning the Word that I want you to write down. Don't worry. We'll get through them quickly. Seven things about the Word, concerning the Word. So let's start in verse 1 real quickly. In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning the very, it was the Word. The very first verse, John tells us the Word was in the beginning. What beginning? John 1.1 1, 1 beginning? No, he's talking about in the beginning, Genesis 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In that beginning, it says what? That the Logos, the Word, was... He was in the beginning. The Greek, the Greek of this, if you read in the Greek, it says the Word was continuously existing before the beginning began. That's the tense of, of the Greek there. The, the, um, the Word was already existing when existence came into existence. I know. Believe me. It's fun to get your head around these things when you're talking about because we deal in time. And so... If you are writing, taking notes, please jot down for number one concerning the word, the word pre-existed creation. The word pre-existed creation. And that's important. That means the word existed before creation was created. Can you even imagine that right now? Everything we know is, is time and space. Yesterday, today. And, and the way that we calculate all that is we're on a ball that turns and there's light around us and, and we go around another, another ball and, and that one gives us a day and a 24-hour cycle and everything we have is measured in this sense of time. 
What happens when there isn't any of that, not even space, which, by the way, is physical. There's no space. There's no time. There's only eternity, timelessness. He existed before the creation of the universe. One of the trippy things about science is they know that they're believing that that the reason why this is not the only realm or whatever it is they want to call it, this is not the only uh, dimension that we live in, is because the math tells us that this world can be folded, and that's an example. And, and, and if something can be folded, it has to be folded into something. Does that make sense? A little bit? Probably not. <coughs> I won't get into it right now. But beyond our physical world, there is a, an eternal place, and this is where the Word existed before we were all created. And so it's very important to know if Jesus is the Word, if He is the Son of God, and He was already existing before the creation of time and space and this universe, then He was not what? He's not created. He is not created. He is eternal. And so again, the first thing to write down is the word pre-existed. The second thing we need to write down is in verse 2 which says, in, in the, I'm sorry, the second part of verse 1, and the Word was with God. This Word preexisted, but it was also coexisted. And that's the second thing, is the Word coexisted with God. And so the Word not only preexisted creation, He preexisted in the beginning with God. That's where the Word was before all of this began. And if you keep reading, it says, and the Word what? And the Word was God. How many of you are getting confused? In the beginning was the Word. He preexisted, and He's with God. He coexisted with God, but yet it says, what does it say? And He was God. We're going to circle back to this in just a second, but it's important to know that the Word is clearly God. He preexisted before creation, but He preexisted with God. And this is where we see that although the Word is God, the Word is also distinct from God. Do you see that? It's saying it is, but it's saying that it's distinct from God. And this is where the doctrine of the Trinity is developed. That you have God in three persons, co-equal, always eternal, yet there is only one God. Hard to describe something that is beyond our dimension, but this is exactly what the Bible teaches and this is where our understanding of the very nature of God is developed, specifically our understanding of between the relationship between the Father and the Son. The relationship between the Father and the Son, we begin to see it right here. Two of the three members of the, of the Holy Trinity, God the Father and God the Son, each fully God, yet the Scriptures declare there's only one God. But here we see that God the Father and the Word preexisted creation together. What was that like? John's going to take us there in John chapter 17, which is kind of the holy of the holies of, the, of this book. It's, it's pretty, a pretty amazing place. But if you look in John chapter 17, you can cheat and move ahead. We'll be there in the year 2025. But when G, it says there, it says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. This is John 17, beginning in verse 1. He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Glorify the Son that the Son may glorify you. 
since you have given him authority over all flesh. Interesting, there's equality and yet there's roles. Do you see that? Jesus is God and yet there are roles between the Father and the Son. Remind you of any relationships you have? Marriage. <laughs> to be one. There's equality and yet there are roles. Pretty interesting. Since you have given him all authority over all flesh to give eternal life to whom all you have given, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Verse 4, and this is, the, this is the one. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. They shared in a perfect face-to-face relationship. They were together throughout eternity, sharing glory. And Jesus comes and he shares his glory with us that we might see and know the one true God. In verse 25, if you keep skipping down, Jesus says the Father loved Jesus before the foundations of the earth. That's the relationship they had from all eternity past. There's so much more we could talk about it. But Jesus, the Son of God, the Word, he not only preexisted, but he coexisted with the Father before the world existed. And, and this leads us to the third point, which we already touched on at the end of verse 1, and the Word was God. Literally in the Greek, it's flipped around, and God was the Word. God was the Word. If you want to deal with a person who denies that Jesus Christ is God, you take him to John chapter 1, verse 1. And I know the Jehovah's Witnesses have their own Bible that says he was a God. You can go into the Greek pretty easy and, and say, no, that's not what it's saying. Jesus is God. The Word was God. Literally in the Greek, God was the Word. And so the Word preexisted. The word coexisted. Now John tells us that the word was God. That's the third time. The Bible clearly teaches that Jesus is God. And this is that clearest declaration that we have in the New Testament. But others for you to write down. If you want to know about the deity of Jesus Christ, here's just a couple. Colossians 2.9. Colossians 2.9, if you're taking notes about Jesus being God. It says, for in Him, that is in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily in Christ. God fully is in Him. They are one. Philippians 2, 5 through 7. Philippians 2, 5 through 7. Have this in mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, He was in the form of God. He preexisted with God. He was equal with God. And he says it's not something to be held on to. That's what he's saying, not to be grasped, not like he's attaining it. He's not holding on to it. What does that mean? He's talking about the form. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a what? Of a servant. He became flesh. Still God, but in the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. John 8, 58 is another one. Jesus uses the name of God for himself, and they try to kill him. As a result of that, Jesus says to the Jews, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. You're going, what's the big deal? When God 
revealed himself to Moses. Moses said, what do I tell them your name is? And what did God say to Moses? He said, tell them I am that I am. Ego and me is the, is the, um, is the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Ego and me. Jesus sits there and says, before Abraham was. Because they said, you're not even 50 years old. And you're saying you, you talk to Abraham. You're out of your mind. And Jesus says, I'm telling you, before Abraham was, I am the eternal God. And they picked up rocks to stone him. So another example, Thomas, after the resurrection, cries out to Jesus in John 20, 28. Thomas answered Jesus and says, you know, after Jesus appears to him, say, hey, here's my holes where I am. Thomas sees Jesus and cries out and says, my Lord, my God. And they worshiped him. So over and over again, these examples of Jesus being Christ in the New Testament. The word pre-existed creation, the word coexisted with God the Father, and the word was God. And verse 2 really reiterates his, his eternal nature, and he was in the beginning with God. And if the word was God, and the word had an active part in the creating universe, if he was God, he must have been creator, and that's what verse 3 goes and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And so a positive statement, everything was made through him, and a negative statement, nothing was made without him. So he gets both ways. No matter how you want to dice it, he, the word was totally involved in creation. So the word preexisted creation, coexisted with the Father, the word is God, and now all things were made through the word. Nothing was made without, without him. Now, now, make no mistake, real quickly, the Bible is clear that God the Father has the main role in creation. He is the creator, God. You can't open the Old Testament without going a few verses or pages without seeing Him as the creator God, and absolutely, He is the creator God. The Holy Spirit is, is part of creation. We see Him in Genesis 1, and that story as well, uh, where, where He is taking part. He's brooding over the waters. Verses like Psalm 33, where it talks about that He... His word spoke and His Spirit came into things that give them life. We are born of the Spirit. So the Spirit is part of creation. I know I'm going over this really quickly. But an example of an Old Testament verse would be Jeremiah 32, 17. Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too far, uh, hard for you. And so God is the Creator. But the Bible clearly says that God the Father made the known universe through the Son. He made them through the Son. And that is how it happened. The Word. God created the universe through the Word. And so they share in the creation of the universe. And you can see it here like in Psalm 33, 6. By the Word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth, all their hosts. And again, we see Genesis 1, that God spoke by His Word and the universe came into being. And in the New Testament, Hebrews 1, 1 through 2, speaks of the Son of God in creation when it says at the end of verse 2, through Him, he, that is Christ, through Him, He also created the world. And so God the Father created the universe through the Son. Colossians 1, 15 through 17, this is an interesting place that, again, Jehovah's Witnesses like to take you and say, see, Jesus is created. No, that is not what is happening here. 
He, Colossians 1, 15 through 17, He, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Firstborn is not about being created. He's, it's about rank. How many of you are firstborn in your family? And you are now, in, now you're in charge of a bunch of stuff that you didn't necessarily want to be in charge of. Right? <laughs> you are firstborn. You are over in rank. He is over the creation, and that's what that is speaking of. He is firstborn over all creation. For, why? Verse, four, verse 16, for by Him all things were created. He created all things. He wasn't created in the creation and created Himself. For by Him, by Jesus, all things were created. Where? On, in heaven and on earth. How about laws? How about demons? How about angels? How about things we can see and can't see, both visible and invisible? He created it all, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things. Do you see a, little, a word repeated? All, 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 all. He's, the writers wanted you to know in every possible way that Jesus created everything. So what do you think everything includes in this room? The world, the material world came into being through Jesus Christ, the Word. So Paul in Colossians 1, he testifies that Jesus, the Son of God, was actively involved in creation. And John is saying the same thing in verse 3. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made. It was made. And so the Word pre-existed creation, the Word coexisted with God the Father, the Word is God, and all things were made through the Word. In verse 4, and in Him was what? And in Him was life. If you're taking notes, life is the Word. You need to know that. Life is in the Word. <laughs> Either way. But the Greek word here used for life is not bios. It's not, it's not biology. It's not body. It's zoe. It's spiritual life. It's eternal life. You see, we have biological life, and obviously that life exists in God. He gave it to us, right? But our body, you know, when we're born, our bodies function, but, but there is also a life that is in us that can't be quantified. It can't be measured. You are, you know, I, you know someone said, and this is kind of crude, but, you know, you, someone loses an arm, you know, they didn't take their life. The other arm, they didn't take their life. Their legs, they didn't take their life, but, you know, you cut your head, you got something else going on. You are not necessarily tied to your biological, well, you are. You are integrated with your biological body, but those two can be separated. You are a spirit at the core of who you are. That's pretty interesting to me. But by nature, you have zoe, you have life, a spiritual life. And that life is going to go give an account before God. And that life, by nature of being eternal, is going to go eternally one way or the other. It's going to go eternally departing from God in hell, or it's going to be eternally in His presence. And the question is, but do, have, have we, do we have everlasting life through the Word? And John's going to build up to that in John chapter 3. But Jesus alludes to this in the negative in Matthew 10, 28, where he says, don't be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. 
Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. That's a scary thought. It's not just physical, it's spiritual. And so there's an element to who we are that's that's, we can't quantify, we can't figure it out. It's spiritual. You can physically die, but there's a death far worse because it does not end. Because you are eternal. You've been touched by the Creator. You've been made. That's a scary thought, isn't it? And the implication is fear the Lord, repent and believe in Jesus who has the power to forgive and to give you His eternal life. Life comes through Christ. True life. Jesus said of Himself later on in John 14, 6, Jesus said to Him, I am the way, the truth, and what? The life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And this is what it is to be a Christian, to believe in Jesus Christ, that He preexisted, that He coexisted, that He's God, that He created the universe. And in Him alone is everlasting life. As Paul says, in Him we live and move and we have our being in Acts 17, 28. And what about this life the Word possesses? You know, let's kind of flesh it out a little bit. The end of verse 4, and the life was the what? It was the light of men. So it's saying the Word preexisted and it coexisted. It's the creator of the universe. And in Him is life. What life is. We think walking around in our bodies, we're actually the walking dead. But He is true life. And He wants to give His life away to you. He wants to share His life with you and me. He came to do that. The life is the light of men. And this is an analogy. The word's life is the light of men. And you can see the metaphor here that men, that is this fallen world, we're in darkness. We need light. We need what? Life. That's the analogy. If all the lights were turned off in this room, we'd be walking around in darkness. If we grew up that way, we'd never know any different. But when light comes into the room and He shines, all eyes focus on the light. We're illuminated. We see who we are. We see what true light is, what true life is, and we see that we don't have it within us. And that's what Christ came to do. The words... Life is the light to our darkness. And verse 5 says, the light shines in the darkness. The Word didn't keep His life to Himself. He came into the darkness and shined His light, His life. And this is where we were all, this is the state we were in before Christ came into our lives. We were in total spiritual darkness. We were dead. And He came into our darkness and revealed himself to us. And this is where we all find like that quote in Matthew 4.16, this darkness we live in. Matthew 4.16 is quoting Isaiah 9.2, which says, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. 
on those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And that's who Christ is. He is the light of the world. It's not that He just shines light on us, but there's an analogy there. There's the kingdom of darkness. And Christ came into darkness and is the light of the world. He shines His life, His everlasting life across the world. That whoever wants to repent and believe can have His life. He takes His life and gives it to whom the Father allows, John 17 says. Who's that? Anyone who believes. Anyone turns and believes. You have His light. That's called being born again. There's so many different ways in which the, the Bible describes all of this going on. It's, it's like being born again. You're given new life. And this is why Nicodemus was so, had such a hard time in John chapter 3. Because he's like, what do you mean? I've got to enter into my mom's womb again? That's darkness talk. See, he had no clue what Jesus was talking about. He had no clue that he was dead and he needed life. And Jesus kept talking to him and illuminating him. And he, he used parables and things from the dark world that would illustrate the kingdom of light. And, and, and as the Spirit began to work on people's hearts, they began to see and to know. And once people realized they're in total darkness, this is what Jesus is talking about, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When you realize, I am a dark person in the middle of a dark land, and we're totally we're all dead. We need your life. When Jesus comes into a person, He illuminates them and they become alive. And the things of the Spirit, the things of the kingdom of God become their life, light. His kingdom becomes our kingdom. His life is now our life. So Jesus preexisted. He coexisted. He is God. He created the universe. And in Him is that, in the Word is everlasting life. And then the Word who brings us His life is the light shining in the darkness. And here's the interesting thing. This is the Jesus that John wants us to know. He wants us to know that He's not, not your flannel graph Jesus. He's not your hip, cool, um, super relevant Jesus he is who He is, and He stands on His own. He came from eternity past with the Father. He's God. He created the universe. He came into the universe to bring us His life to all who would believe. And here's the thing. And the darkness has not overcome it. And that's the last thing John wants us to know in the introduction that darkness is not going to prevail. It cannot overcome the light. The very nature of life is that it overtakes death, His life, His eternal life. Just like a light in a dark room, it, light dispels darkness. And that's what happens when Christ comes into a heart. He dispels the darkness. He grows in your heart. That's what happens when He's the center of a church, He's the center of a family. He's the center of your life. He overcomes, and the darkness does not overcome it. And the, and the last thing is, is basically just the Word prevails. The Word prevails. 
The darkness here is the kingdom of Satan and demons and all that are under his sway. And Satan tried to snuff out the light. He tried it through genocide when he murdered all those babies, both back in the day of, of Moses and at the time of Christ. You know, with, he tried to annihilate the Jews by genocide. He tried to do infanticide, homicide. I mean, that's, that's his cup of tea. He tried everything he could to annihilate the life and the light. Jesus Christ on the cross said, this is the hour of darkness. And, he, and Satan and the demons, they gave him everything he possibly could. The hour of darkness, the hour when darkness reigned as Jesus was betrayed and falsely accused and beaten and scorned and crucified. Even through all that, they could not put out the light. They put him in a grave, and what happened? He ascended higher than all principalities and all powers and everything, seated at the right hand of the Father, shining. And he sent his Holy Spirit into his church, life, that we would be born again by believing in the simple gospel that Jesus came and died for sinners in our place, was resurrected, that we too would be resurrected from our dead life and actually from physical death by faith in Christ. His life is now in us if we believe, and that life is lived out in Him. The darkness has not overcome. His kingdom is going forward. He rose, He lives, and He offers forgiveness of sins and eternal life to everyone who turns to the Word, to the Son of God, to Jesus in faith. And so, may the Lord reach into the darkness of our church. May He reach into the darkness of our families. May He reach into the darkness of the city, of our nation, of this world, with His light. And by the way, Jesus turned around and said to his disciples, what did he say to them? You are the what of the world? You are the light of the world. How could that be? Because his light, his life is in you. What does he think he wants you to do with that light in life? Put it under a bushel? No. Let it shine. Go grab others. And this is the heart. We're, we're done here. God is a missionary God. He leaves what is comfortable and secure and his position and his authority and all the things that he has, and he became a servant. Why? To go grab you. And he puts his life in you, and what does he expect of you? The same to lay down your life, your position, your security, your authority, all that stuff. For whom? For the lost. For each other. And in that, the love of God is revealed. It's pretty powerful stuff. It's simple. Praying that as we focus on Jesus, we know more about Him, but that knowledge wouldn't just be an end. It would be a motivation within our hearts as we, as we follow Him. So let's pray. Lord God, I just want to thank you for your son.
who <laughs> left your side and came and was so humble that we didn't even recognize him. He was so cloaked, so reserved that looking upon his outward appearance, we would have no clue of who he was. And that's just like the world, Lord. We look on the outside, but you, Lord, look at the heart. And on the inside of your son, Lord, was the radiance of God Almighty, bringing your grace and truth into the world. And I pray that you would continue that work in and through your church this week. Lord, bless our food as we gather together and eat. We want to thank you for everybody who's brought stuff and has prepared it. And uh, we ask that as we celebrate your life, Lord, that we be mindful of one another and the role that you've given us here as your servants until we see you face to face, Lord. Thank you for your life. Thank you for your light. Use us. In the name of Jesus, amen.